go ahead uh get started i think it's like 18 yeah let's let's go 18. ahead and let's go ahead and jump into this so uh welcome back to okramad where art thou um as i think is typical for us we're kind of bouncing all over the place which i think makes our show interesting and and also hopefully you know engaging for you our listeners so we last week we talked about soviet science fiction uh and and american science fiction and we're going to switch courses today uh in light of the uh emergence of these Afghanistan papers or whatever they're being called in the American press now. I've, I haven't read any of the papers directly, but I did read like the Washington Post story about it and, and other uh, articles. And to kind of give you a rundown, I mean, and maybe this isn't a surprise, right? <laughs> Our government sort of lied to us about the progress um, and the objectives and how we were achieving them in the Afghanistan war that we've been fighting since you know, really what, like 2002 to like 2001, 2000, is it 2000? Oh yeah. Right. It was October, right. October, 2001 yeah. is when we started. Bombing. Yeah. So since, so since 2001 and of course there's uh, another nation that well, no longer exists, but uh, we certainly talk about its successors, right? I mean, in the Soviet union fought a long drawn out conflict in Afghanistan and while the conflict that we're fighting in Afghanistan uh, has not ended yet, so we don't know what its resolution is going to be, uh, it appears from the initial sort of negotiations that it's going to be very similar to what happened uh, in the case of the Soviet Union, which is that, you know, they fight and fight and fight and really leave without achieving any sort of real uh, change or any mm -hmm. real concrete objectives in the country. Oh, and the other thing that we're going to be talking about, too, uh, a historical event, is um, we're approaching the 25th anniversary of the Soviet, uh, or I shouldn't, excuse me, not Soviet, of the Russian uh, invasion uh, and siege of Grozny, which is the capital of Chechnya. So we're going to be talking a little bit about the first Chechen war and the wars that, so these two wars, the Afghan war and the Chechen war, and the impact that they have on the Soviet Union and on Russia, uh, what that impact uh, is, you know, how that impact is still felt today. And then on top of that, to try and tie that into what we've been seeing uh, with the Afghan papers, with the United States um, mil you know, campaigns in Afghanistan and really all over the world, um, is... This idea of like in the information age, how can you have all of these conflicts going on throughout the world and really nobody knows about them? And that, you know, to me is, is something that's, um, you know, in some senses remarkable. I mean, in some senses, not so much remarkable. And, and we'll get into that. But again, I think there's similarities between what Russia and the Soviet Union has gone through and learned from and what we're going on through now. So mm -hmm. to sort of give you a preview of what this episode is going to be about, it's going to be, you know, somewhat about Soviet and Russian history, uh, but more so like how did we get to the, the position we are in today where military conflict is going on, but we still know, you know, the fog of war, as they say, is still is still ever present. So we'll just go ahead and jump in and sort of talk about why the the Soviet Union would even want to fight a war in Afghanistan. And so 
I think the the biggest reason is Afghanistan bordered the then Soviet Union. So if you look at the map now, you'll see that Afghanistan borders like Tajikistan, you know, all these other sort of stans in the, in the in Central Asia. And at at the time, those were all part of the Soviet Union, and there are also um, you know Soviet republics where there were. I, I don't think it was a majority Russian or even Slavic in those republics. I think they are all majority Muslim areas. Um, they certainly are now. I mean, most of the Russians and Slavs have left those areas since the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. But, you know, as Afghanistan transitions from an independent kingdom to I, I want to say that it had somewhat of like a, you know, a so it had a socialist government. Um, but I don't think that it was, you know, that hard line yet. But anyway, Afghanistan has a socialist government. Uh, it's enacting a lot of reforms. Uh, there's a lot of pushback to those reforms, uh, mm -hmm. especially from people who are, you know, more traditionally oriented, right? Who believe that these reforms are, you know, against their their beliefs um, as Muslims, and that's sort of where you start to see this conflict emerging between. Um, Various, you know, political and 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 other uh, other groups, you know, who would later sort of form the backbone of like the what are going to be known as the Mujahideen, right? Like the freedom fighters, and the Afghan government. Mm -hmm. and so the Afghan government is locked into a conflict with these groups, and what the Soviet Union is very fearful of, right? I mean, especially since it's an atheist state, uh, you know, it's a state that oppresses religion. Um, Oppression within Central Asia dates back all the way to the Russian conquest, right? I mean, during the Soviet, uh, during the um, Russian Revolution, you know, these areas broke away from the Russian Empire and had to be reconquered and brought back into the Soviet Union. So, you know, their loyalty to the Soviet cause is, you know, is very, is very, you know, dubious from the Russian perspective, right? And so they're very fearful that what's going on in Afghanistan, this uh, sort of reemergence of um, of like a Islamic political force, that that's going to bleed over the border into the Soviet Union and cause them a lot of headaches in their own, uh, you know, in their in their own country. So they launched this uh, sort of dramatic. Uh, special forces assault, like they take over Kabul, they assassinate the uh, current president or the who was the president at the time, because he's not, you know, they don't think he's very reliable. They install a more pro-Soviet uh, leader as president, and they send ground troops in. Mm -hmm. And I think initially, right, I mean, the Soviets think, okay, well, the Afghan army is going to be doing the bulk of the fighting. Right. We're just going to be providing like technical, the technical support, right? Like the heavy equipment, the air power, et cetera, et cetera. And they're going to be doing all the hard work. Well, uh, obviously it does not, you know, it does not work out that way. Right. And, and Russia or the, sorry, the Soviet Union finds itself engaged in a much longer term conflict where, you know, very similar, I mean, the parallels between what the United States, like what we've gone through and what the Soviet Union went through, I mean, are really remarkable. I mean, in the, in the sense that the, you know, the Soviets control the major cities, they have these air bases, you know, these like sort of strongholds, uh, they're able to venture out into the countryside, right, and, and you know, like engage in search and destroy missions, 
right, where you, mm -hmm. you find enemy villages or enemy strong points, or you actively sort of bait the enemy into to attacking you, and you use your overwhelming firepower to, you know, destroy them. Uh, it was a very similar thing that uh, the United States tried to do in Vietnam, right? Like you just, don't... Yeah, I was just going to say, it's almost, it, it like, you hear Afghanistan get called the Soviets Vietnam a lot, and uh -huh. I think I think that's always just kind of I always assumed that that was because it was a a long conflict that they got bogged down in. But this idea of going in and setting up, you know, starting off with, um, you know, what did we we call them the uh, military advisors is what Kennedy called. Uh, oh right, who, right. Like that, that we were just serving an advisory role to the South Vietnamese, um, and then, you know, as the conflict drags on, getting more and more involved until it's actually uh, the United States or the Soviet Union in this case that are that are the ones doing the fighting, and then, like you said, holding the major major cities and and all of that. Um, that's it's almost parallel. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it really on that regard or in that regard is remarkable. Right. I mean, both mm -hmm. the United States and the Soviet Union had this belief that um, that uh, superior firepower. Right. And superior, right. Um, you know, military training and tactics and technology would would win the day. And, and you know, really, that doesn't happen. And so Russia finds itself being. Um, you know, finds itself bogged down in this conflict. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it also, you know, finds itself now, I mean, it's sort of ironic, right, in that it wanted to go in and prevent the spread of, you know, shore up the socialist government, so to prevent the spread of... Um, Wahhabism, right? I mean... Yeah, like spread the, you know, stop the spread of... Um, I don't want to say radical Islam, but, you know, like an Islamic government, right, that's going to appeal to its the its own uh, Islamic believers in, within the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and instead, like, it really kicks up the hornet's nest, right? Because uh, as I'm sure many Americans know, right, like Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda gets started during the Soviet-Afghan uh, War, uh, all sorts of... Um, of money from the United States CIA, from the like the Arab states in the Gulf are flowing is flowing into Afghanistan. Um, Pakistan, right, is forming a, a big role in this in establishing mm -hmm. connections with the Mujahideen and and um, funneling money and weapons to them. And, you know, really, like in this sense, like it becomes an international conflict. Yeah, I mean, it's and, Charlie Wilson's war. Like yeah, and I, I haven't seen that movie in a very, very long time. But yeah, I mean, that's sort of the same idea that that America sees this as an opportunity to sort of get back at the Soviet Union for what the Soviet Union did in uh, Vietnam, right, which was mm -hmm. just mostly provide technical support uh, and, and military like material, right, material support to North Vietnam and by, you know, consequence, the Viet Cong. And so again, you know, Russia finds itself in a position where this war is not really winnable, right? I mean, the Mujahideen right. will never be able to kick Russia out of its bases. Uh, Russia still has its dominant firepower, you know, despite the fact, like I, 
I think in America, I think it's overstated how much impact those uh, Stinger missiles had uh, <laughs> right. on the conflict. Because, like, if you, from an American perspective, and especially if you watch Charlie Wilson's War, they make it sound like uh, Stingers, which are these um, these heat-seeking anti-aircraft missiles, you know, really were like a game changer, for lack of a better term, uh, in the conflict. And, you know, I don't know if that's really true. I mean, I, I think that the Russian, the Soviets developed new tactics. Uh, they developed better anti-aircraft uh, systems. And, I mean, at the same time, like, um, the the Afghans had all of these stingers when we went and invaded there. And we didn't really seem too concerned about them, you know, shooting down our helicopters either, uh, at least in, a, in enough of a, like, at least not shooting down enough of the helicopters to really make a difference. But I mean, what really changes, right. Is like, they can't take the countryside. Right. Right. And their, their Afghan partners are extremely unreliable, right? Like most of the, the government's troops do not want to fight in this war. Like most of them are there to take a paycheck. And that reminds me of like what I read in this Washington post article about uh, what we were like, what we were doing in Afghanistan, like trying to create a central government, uh, something that doesn't just doesn't seem like it's possible uh, in Afghanistan and how the Afghanistan police and army, like how there were serious morale problems, serious corruption problems, uh, all of it. I mean, so, okay. So is that, that's a, I guess a good jumping off point. Um, were there similar problems with kind of like the, um, you know, I think one difference is that the Soviet Union was trying to, um, their at least their state of objective was trying to defend an existing government, whereas uh, we are trying to create, the United States is trying to create one. Did the Soviet Union run into those similar kind of issues like they're talking about in the Washington Post, you know, they're given, they were just pouring money into Afghanistan with no real direction for where it was supposed to go, right? Like, did you, mm-hmm. do you remember reading that part about the, the one, the one guy for the CIA was, was told, go spend $3 million a day in like a province that was the size of, you know, like a normal United States county. Yeah, no, I did hear that, and and he was like, "There's no way it's, that I you can just spend can't all of do it. Money. It's you can't do it." Yeah, um, so I I don't know as much as about that element of it. I don't think that the that the Soviet Union was really uh, mm-hmm. engaged as much in the attempt to win uh, hearts and minds uh, as much to say like we tried uh, anyway. Um, so on, on that regard, I think the, the, the conflicts are sort of different. Um, but again, militarily, it goes much the same way. Right. And part of that, too, is, I mean, my, you know, this sort of goes back to Machiavelli and even before that, right? I mean, Machiavelli, uh, you know, tells the prince, like, you know, if you have to fight a war, uh, you better use your own troops for it. Because if you have to lie, right. if you have to rely on mercenaries... Uh, mercenaries aren't always going to be loyal to you. And that's, you know, very much the position that the Soviet Union found itself in and that the United States found itself in is, you know, at the end of the day, I think a lot of those Afghan soldiers are like, look, like whatever this is that I'm out here fighting for, like this doesn't, this just isn't worth getting killed for. 
Mm -hmm. And so desertion is extremely high. Um, you know, desertion and taking, you know, material meant for the Afghan army and giving it to the Mujahideen or in, or in this case, the Taliban, um, is common. And so the Soviet Union, you know, finds itself in this immense problem, right? And, and much like, you know, the Vietnam War, the Soviet Union is telling its people that it's not, you know, there to really fight that kind of a war. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, but it, it sort of, it can't hide the fact of, of what's going on, you know, even though it does. And this is where this sort of great, there's a great movie sort of about this phenomenon, um, this term, and, and I don't know if you've heard it before, Andrew, but it's called Cargo 300 is in, in English. Uh, or Cargo 200, sorry. I, I think I've heard the term that I've heard you bring it up before when we were talking about Chernobyl, but outside of that, I haven't heard the, the term. Okay, so cargo, like Cargo 200 uh, refers to these like zinc-lined coffins that they would ship Russian soldiers home, like Soviet soldiers home from the Soviet-Afghan war. And so sort of instead of saying that, you know, this plane is full of dead soldiers, you know, you would say mm -hmm. that it's a shipment of like cargo 200. What, why were and, they aligned with zinc? Why were the coffins lined with zinc? That I have never really been able to figure out. Uh, I probably could have figured that out from Google, but like <laughs> off the top of my head, I don't know why the co the coffins were zinc lined. Because I, I, mean, I don't know. Presumably, these aren't a bunch of like radioactive corpses or something. Maybe it's just a, a cheap cheap material to use. But... Yeah, I mean, it, it could be. Um, but cargo two hundred now in Russian has come to you know sort of connotate mm -hmm. um, you know sort of the the price to be paid in a war. But, you know, also the the I think attempts of like the government right to like hide the fact that there are so many casualties because, uh, you know, another common tactic was that they would bring the that they would bring the bodies home or like tell the loved ones about what happened to their that their to their you know sons who were soldiers in like in the middle of the night. Right. And so there were all these sort of attempts to mask how bad the war in Afghanistan is going. Um, but of course, you know, Russia's, the Soviet Union, excuse me, is unable to do that because now, the casualties is... mounting. I'm, I want to look, I want to look something up quick. If, am I just completely misimagining something or is there something from a few years ago about the, uh, uh, the Pentagon not wanting press at, um, whatever the air base is in, I think, Delaware, where Ooh, uh, the bodies... Uh, yeah, I know what you're talking am about. I, am uh, I crazy, or was that something that happened? Well, I mean, I know I know the military base. I don't know about not wanting press there. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, yes, this was... Okay, so so they, they, so they're, they're doing all this stuff to, to try and hide it, and this looks like this was actually something that had been... This was something that had been put in place, at least in the Bush, Bush administration. They had a similar ban in place, um, a, a photo ban on, on military coffins, and that was lifted by the Obama administration. Huh. So this is so this is not something that is, you know, one more parallel, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Another another parallel. Well, 
Um, and Cargo 200 uh, also happens to be this great uh, Russian uh, movie, you know, set mm-hmm. during the Afghan war in within the Soviet Union itself. And it's just uh, I don't I mean, I, I don't want to get too much into the, the plot of the movie, but I mean, it's sort of essentially about the decline, like the moral and societal decline that's going on in the Soviet Union at the same time. And mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, I don't know how much you can say the Afghan war you know, really played a role or how much of a role it played in the eventual collapse of the Soviet Union. But, you know, it certainly doesn't help, right? I mean, the Soviets right. withdraw their forces in 1989. Uh, two years later, the Soviet Union is gone. And I, I think, again, like it just sort of, it builds into what we've talked about with Chernobyl mm-hmm. and, you know, all these other things that are going on with the Soviet Union, like even to some extent, like what we talked about with Tarkovsky's films, which is, you know, your reality isn't really matching up with what's going on uh, or like the your what the government is telling you is not really matching up with what your reality and your lived day-to-day experience actually is right so and so okay so i you know this uh, go ahead no 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 please well so i um i'm thinking about that and again with the, the parallels to vietnam um you know, one of the things that's pointed to as why uh, the U.S. eventually, um, you know, why the U.S. lost that war was because there was a lack of popular support and it was just um, couldn't, it was politically untenable to continue continue that war. And one of the reasons for that, it gets pointed to, um, you know, the, the critical press coverage of of the war, uh, the Pentagon Papers leaking and showing that the that the war was not going anywhere near as well as the uh, the government was saying it was, and the one thing that you know the, the one major event was uh, the Tet Offensive, right, which was um, a surprise attack by the North Vietnamese against uh, American and South Vietnamese uh, military. Uh, installations and from a pure tactical standpoint it was a uh it was a military loss for the north vietnamese but because of the bad propaganda uh and and showing that the north had this capability to strike it it was it's considered a turning point in the war um and so i'm wondering if there was anything like that uh in the soviet union especially considering you know the difference of political freedoms in the two societies right like i'm guessing there probably isn't someone like a walter cronkite in soviet history at least in the in the same way um that could could really call out uh the government and highlight you know all the ways that the government is lying um but i'm i'm curious if that's the case uh, you know, there there wasn't so much a Walter Cronkite figure, right? But mm-hmm. I mean, there certainly is like, you know, people talk, right? And there's certainly right. like an underground network or, you know, informal channels of communication where, you know, people are, are understanding like how badly this war is going, right? Because if the, uh, you know, if you hear on TV or if you read something in, you know, the state in the state press about how the war is improving, you know, that the military is achieving its objectives, but they're still conscripting, 
you know, or like you you know that your son, who's a conscript, just right. got sent there, right? Like, I mean, that that's not matching up. Uh, I mean, the other thing that's going on at the same time as well is, you know, Gorbachev, um, at least at the end, is now the president. Right. And Gorbachev has an extremely ambitious domestic agenda that he wants to achieve. And that's really not going to be, you know, having all these soldiers and fighting this war in Afghanistan is not going to make that easier on him. Right. So, I mean, that's certainly a um, a factor behind it. I mean, I think the other thing, too, is just that the that the uh, the Soviet Union was not I think they understood that they were never really going to be able to achieve their objectives without engaging in a much bloodier conflict. Right. Mm -hmm. Without rationing up the war uh, to a much higher level, because I think like. I mean, I don't know what our peak deployment was uh, to Afghanistan uh, as far as the United States and NATO goes. But I, I think for the most part, like the max number of troops the Soviet Union had in Afghanistan was maybe like 125,000. Okay. Right. And, and so and that sort of feeds into their strategy, right, of like, you know, we have our bases, we go out in force, right? Like we're not trying to occupy the entire country. Um they were going to rely on the Afghan government to do that, but that never really happens. And so I think all of those factors combined, but I mean, I think especially the domestic, you know, part of it, right? Like, I mean, Gorbachev very much wants to save the Soviet Union. Um, you know, let's not forget like Jim, you know, Jimmy Carter's like boycott of the Olympics in 1980, right? right? Like uh, all the, like, I think we talked about this, like there's a James Bond movie, like, um, the Living Daylights is set in Afghanistan, like the Rambo movie. Yeah, let's say like the Rambo movie. There's the Rambo one. There's a lot of sympathy in the Western world, which again is sort of deeply ironic considering how we view this, you know, like view Muslim fight, you know, like <laughs> fighters now. Um, but uh, you know, I guess it's just how those and things it's go. Purely cold war, like it's it's. I mean, it's purely cold war. Uh, and you know, the enemy of my enemy right. is my friend type right. thing. Um. There's a lot of sympathy for the Afghan, you know, for the Afghan people, uh, and, and rightly so to some extent, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a huge refugee refugee crisis, um, and you know, it's it's sort of the big bad Soviet Union against these, you know, scrappy, you know, freedom fighters. And so, all you know, with all of this going on, I don't think you know Gorbachev needs some political goodwill from the West. Mm -hmm. If he's going to, you know, really achieve the reforms that he wants. And so that's another factor behind it as well. Um, so, you know, all of this leads to the withdrawal of um, of Soviet forces from Afghanistan. And now you know, in the interim, you know, what happens? So, well, okay. the, so I, oh, I one, another question I have is sure there is um, in the United States, I think there is a large. Maybe not large, but there is a an at least sizable amount of the population, and I think a sizable amount of people that fought in Vietnam, that they think that the reason that the reason that the United States lost that war is because they weren't allowed to take the gloves off, so to speak. Oh, right. you okay. know what you know what I'm saying, right? Like, yeah, yeah. The, I mean, like, we, I, I know, we, I know we, what you're talking about. It's, yeah. it's in, in at least, um, 
in at least uh, in, in in Korea, in the Korea War, right? We know that we know that MacArthur wanted to use nukes, but that was also something that there were probably. I, I mean, I know there were were people in the military that think we should have we should have resorted to nuclear weapons in Vietnam. And if you know, if it weren't for if it weren't for the government holding their hands back, then they could have won that war. Right, which is basically to say, like, well, we should if we would have just committed more war crimes, then then we would have been able to do that. Is there is there a similar sentiment in Afghanistan? Right? Is there kind of like a Ooh, like you know, I like is there almost kind of like a bitterness at the fact that this is you know this is humiliating for us and uh, it's we're gonna hold it against our like does Gorbachev suffer as a, does his reputation suffer? as a result of like not necessarily from you know we've talked about how his his reputation suffers because he lost the empire so to speak but like right. is he personally like does he suffer more directly from losing in afghanistan so i this is something that i really not have talked to a lot of my russian friends about uh it's not something that i really like would feel like too confident commenting on but mm -hmm. i think what i what i can say is like you know really russia the soviet union had so many other problems going on right. at the time and sort of like how there was strong sentiment in the united states to end the war in vietnam i think there was definitely a strong sentiment within the soviet union like even within the higher reaches of government mm -hmm. uh, that that this was just a quagmire and they needed to pull the plug uh and, you know, frankly, like the, the other thing is that, again, there were so many other things that they had to worry about that this sort of gets pushed to sort of the back burner. So I right. don't think that there's a, a strong sort of sentiment that if the if they had stayed, if they had, you know, sent, you know, mobilized more men and sent them in there, that like that was something that they should have done. And that was something that like needed to be done. Um, so. I think that would be my sort of educated guess on that. But you asked a very good question because this is going to sort of lead us to the next, you know, the next thing that we that I wanted to talk about mm -hmm. or that we were going to talk about for today, uh, which is the first Chechen war. Mm -hmm. Right. So like the Soviet Union collapses um, in, you know, 1991 uh, along and, and as that happens, uh, you know, Chechnya, for those who don't know, it's a small, you know, republic in, in, in territory within the Russian Empire, then later the Soviet Union, and then again in um, an independent Russia. And the Chechens are a people that have, you know, really actively fought and rebelled against Russian rule. You know, right. they, they fought and rebelled uh, against the initial conquest during the, the imperial period. Uh, under the Soviet Union, you know, Stalin has a lot of them exiled to Central Asia, um, you know, because like Stalingrad is fairly close, right? The Battle of Stalingrad is clo close to the Caucasus mm -hmm. and German soldiers actually made it into the Caucasus region. So there's a lot of fear that the, these groups are going to, you know, that they're not loyal enough and that they're going to they're going to join the Nazis against the Soviet Union. So many of them were exiled into Central Asia and, you know, not allowed to come back to their traditional homeland until after the war. So, I mean, there's a lot of resentment there. And 
you know, Chechnya decides that it's going to declare independence. And it's a small, you know, mountainous region. It's kind of far away from the major power centers. And, you know, for a while, there's sort of this standoff, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, the Russians, I don't think, want to go in and engage in some sort of bloody conflict. Um, You know, they are sort of supporting those elements within Chechnya that want to remain a part of Russia. But, you know, the thing hovering over all of this is that there are other, you know, you know, since Russia is so diverse and since its diversity, you know, stems in large part because these were areas that the Russian Empire absorbed, right? So like they're taking other, you know, people's traditional homelands, right? Um, There's a fear that these areas with sizable majorities of non-Russians are going to see Chechnya as an example and be like, well, hey, you know, if they're independent, then why can't we be too? And so Yeltsin, you know, sort of makes the decision to send soldiers into Chechnya. And again, sort of the classic, you know, I shouldn't say classic problem, but like the same problem that faced them in Afghanistan. You know, many of the soldiers in their military are conscripts. Um, and I guess at this point, it would probably be a good idea to uh, to talk about how this works. So like, I think this is true even in Russia today. I mean, they are trying to go to a more contract-based military like, you know, we have in the right. United States. But I mean, traditionally, what happens is um, you're conscripted for two a period of two years, and every Russian male has to do this. Um, now, avoidance is is high, right? I mean, like I think that there's exemptions if you're in, you know, school, like college. I think there's exemptions. Um, you know, there's also widespread problems of like faking injuries to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so sort of the criticism of, of conscription, right, is like you only get you only actually conscript the guys that can't get out of it. <laughs> a little bit of and like so a catch they, 22 they, type situation. Yeah. So, I mean, they really don't want to be there. I mean, that's the argument against it anyway. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's tremendous sort of morale problems. I mean, another problem within the Russian military, and it's something that I think even goes on today, is this idea of like dedovshina is what it's called, like the rule of the grandfathers, for lack of a better term. So like how it works is, you know, you serve for two years, so, uh, but they, they have it set up. So when it's the right is the group that's finished their second year leaves, you have a group that's now been there a year, right? They're right. already in the barracks, and then you have a fresh crop of recruits come in. Mm-hmm. And so then the guys that have been there for a year, you know, there's there's like hazing, like, you know, all sorts of nasty stuff. Right, right. And so that, you know, is also sort is also a huge morale problem. But, you know, anyway, they, they send their mostly conscript-based military into fight in Chechnya, and it does not go very well. Uh, and, you know, sort of unlike the conflict in Afghanistan, you know, the, the Chechens are even sort of more hard pressed. Right. And the Russian mm-hmm. military performs even, you know, even worse. So they, you know, are sort of able to move in towards Grozny, uh, the capital of, uh, of Chechnya, uh, through sort of sheer military force. And then there's this decision that they're going to I think it was like on New Year's Eve of 1994 that they're going to actually invade Grozny. 
and they get engaged in this huge uh, uh, urban, you know, guerrilla war style conflict. You know, the Chechens are, you know, using the territory to their advantage. They're, you know, engaging in like hit and run attacks. You know, they know the territory much better. And it goes very badly. Uh, it goes very badly for the Russians. They lose a lot of men. I mean, they are able to take Grozny, but at like a tremendous cost. And I think just recently the uh, New York Times like did a story on on this uh, on the invasion of Grozny. And I mean, you should see the photos. I mean, it looks like uh, something out of World War Two. I mean, they, they like completely level Grozny to the ground. Um, but, you know, the Chechens don't give up after Grozny. The war continues. And, you know, I think much to the you know surprise of the Russians, right, like the Chechens are able to infiltrate Grozny, um, just like with a few thousand soldiers, and they're able to actually retake Grozny back from the mm -hmm. Russians. And, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And so and so this, I think, gets to the point where you're talking about, like, humiliation. Right. right? Okay. And so, yeah. you know, Yeltsin is in charge at this time. And we've sort of talked about how Yeltsin is extremely erratic. Uh, you know, he drinks too much. He's not a very effective leader. I mean, he's more like a figurehead for, for other, you know, other forces to work. Um, and uh, Yeltsin's, I think it was, um, I think it was like his military, like his secretary of defense. But anyway, his sort of top general is able to negotiate a ceasefire and later a, a withdrawal of Russian forces. And again, like Chechnya, is, you know, is not like de jure independent, right? But like mm -hmm. de facto, it is an, an, an independent country. And Russia went in, paid a tremendous cost in men and in material and really had nothing to show for it. But, you know, this isn't in Afghanistan. Like this isn't in another country that's far away. Um, like this is a part of Russia that Russia considers to be their own territory that they've lost. Right. Right. And so this leads a lot of people to say that, like, you know, the, the attack on Grozny was sort of like the end of any liberal chance that Russia had. Like sort of once they decide that they're going to level Grozny to the ground and engage in these sort of military tactics like that was, you know, that was the end for any, you know, any hope of there being like yeah. a liberal, peaceful Russia um, because. Huh. Uh, oh, sorry, what was that? Oh, no, that's that's just interesting, like that that is the because this is also like the first major. Um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the first major uh, military engagement of the Russian army after the fall of the so Soviet Union. It is, yeah. So it's, I yeah, that's an interesting, that's an interesting way of, way of looking at it because, yeah, the Russians are, they're still acting as, uh, you know, the empire, right? They're still yeah, acting well, with mean, imperial interests. Yeah, I mean, they are. And, you know, it just sort of shows that, like, perhaps, you know, some things you know, didn't really change, right? right? I mean, yeah. that's sort of the very interesting, I think, thing to me in looking at, you know, not just Russian history, but other elements, other areas of history as well, and, and looking at, like, the continuities and instead of, you know, the radical changes, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and seeing how, you know, developments that happen under the, say, Soviet Union, you know, impact independent Russia and how, you know, activities that like the czarist government engaged in would later be used by the Soviet government and, and on and on. But I think this is finally like this is like the wake up call for Russia. 
right? That like it's it's current military situation, like the way that it drafts and trains its soldiers is untenable, mm-hmm. right? Because I mean, the other thing, and this is something that, you know, we also learn the hard way is like the next war or like the current wars that we're fighting most likely will never be like the grand tank battle in Central Europe. Right, right. We know like that's not... Yeah, it's it's still the um, at least the best of my knowledge, it's still the the the, the official uh, Pentagon position to be prepared to fight a, a two front war. Yeah, even uh, though that that's not you know like, I mean even though it's I think he told he told anyone that like the the way that we are prepared for war is to be prepared to fight World War Two again. It's like that's that's just on its face, ridiculous. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, well, as we've learned, like, that's not the war that we're going to fight. Right. And, the you know, the Russians learned this uh, the hard way, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. like, they try to rely on tanks, on, you know, their, like, motorized rifle brigades, and that doesn't really work out for them. And so, you know, in the interim, right, I mean, like, two things happened. You know, one, the the hardliners, I think, within the Russian government, like the, the men in the security forces in the military, uh, want to sort of restore that prestige um, that the sort of influence they have within the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to assert Russian strength again. But at the same time, I think they also know that they can never again engage in a, a conflict where they send, you know, a mostly conscript-based army into fight. And, you know, the other thing, too, especially with Chechnya, with all the reporting that came out right. of there— was there was a lot of negative reporting in the Russian press about what was going on in Chechnya. And it had a very, you know, bad impact on morale. And so you see, I think, this evolution now where Russia sort of, I think, abandons any notion of sending its contract troops abroad ever again. Mm -hmm. Um, It now needs to engage in sort of a new kind of conflict. When you and, when you say contract troops, I just want to be clear. We're taught you're talking about uh, volunteer soldiers, right? Like these are not these are not like Russian Blackwater. Yeah, no, I'm talking about. Yeah, sorry, I should have clarified. So they're they're soldiers that maybe they started off as conscripts, but they signed contracts to become, you know, like our mm-hmm. soldiers right like oh man what what's the like the the yeah volunteered uh, like the the when you walk into the recruiting office right yeah that yeah that they're like volunteers yep like in in russian though they're called like uh kontraktniki so like contract you know contract soldiers okay um but there's there's a move away from that. And I think, you know, also, I think there's an understanding now within Russia that, or at least what they seem to, to figure out is that, you know, really what the people don't like or what lead, like what gets us into trouble is when we have these military engagements where like everyone knows that our soldiers are there. We have a lot of our soldiers there and a lot of our soldiers are getting killed. And Mm -hmm. so we can continue to fight wars. We just have to be much smarter about deploying our own soldiers and, you know, in sort of what roles we use them in. And so, 
you know, in many ways, like this shows itself in the second Chechen war in which Russia is, you know, much more successful. You know, they mm -hmm. rely on um, they find loyal Chechens, right, who are willing to sort of fight for them. Um, if you know, like, I don't know if you've ever seen him on Instagram or Twitter, you know, Ramzan Kadyrov. I was the... just going to say, I was I know he had a um, uh, John Oliver's got, had, had like a running running bit with uh, with him. With Kadyrov, yeah. And yeah. so, well, Kadyrov's, you know, Kadyrov's dad, uh, I think, oh. decides to serve, you know, he, he decides that he's going to be better off with the Russian forces. And so they find, you mm -hmm. know, so they find loyalists, uh, you know, sort of unlike the, the Afghan government, though, and, you know, these soldiers, uh, like the unreliable Afghan soldiers, right? I mean, Russia's much better in choosing its partners, Right. right. I mean, they <laughs> they offer the Kadyrovs, you know, basically th those who will go along with them um, the opportunity to be in power, uh, among other things. I mean, we can you know sort of get into that in just a second. But, you know, it works. Right. Mm -hmm. Like they're able to defeat the separatist movement in Chechnya. They install. Um, um, I think it's first Kadyrov's father and then Kadyrov takes over for his father, who's killed. You know, by an, in an attack by um, uh, Islamist, you know, Islamist forces. But you know, then once Kadyrov's in there, the Soviets or the Soviets, the Russians let Kadyrov do all the dirty work, mm -hmm. right? Like they let Kadyrov keep order in in Chechnya, and I think they try to make it very clear that it's Kadyrov that's doing it, right? Like right. it's not their soldiers, it's not their men, it's it's Kadyrov's men. And this, you know, in many senses, like works for them. Uh, they they do something, and and I think they also learn too to keep their objectives a little bit more limited, right? I mean, you you see something similar in the Georgian War right. that they fight against. Uh, you know, that very brief conflict they had with Georgia in like 2008, I think. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's that's actually something that could probably do like a whole other entire episode on it because I, I feel like. This was something that was, you know, just one more thing that at the time was like, oh, this is actually a really big deal. And then, you know, 10 years later, like no one can remember it happening. Yeah. And and um, I mean, it, it's another, you know, I that it, it always stands out to me because that was the that happened. And I think like two or three months later was the first time I ever went to Russia was mm -hmm. after the the conflict with Georgia. But, um, you know, sort of a, a similar thing, like, you know, the Russians use special forces much more effectively. Uh, they avoid any sort of long drawn out conflict. And um, they do sort of have a local partner, you know, in the sense that uh, they were they were nominally supporting. Oh, what's the name of the region there? In, um, no, Ossetia. Mm -hmm. Like it's a, a breakaway region within Georgia and there's like South Ossetia. So, you know, again, like they better at choosing their local partners, right? And they're able to, you know, win that conflict. And then I think all of this like really becomes, you know, I don't want to say comes out in the open, but like comes really into fruition during the Ukraine conflict, right? The seizure right. of Crimea, where, you know, Russia, the Russian forces there, like, you know, they remove all their insignia, um, you know, like they, they were, I think, nicknamed in the press, like the little green men, right? Like no one knows where they've come from or like right. what country they right. they work for. 
they're just very uh very passionate i mean didn't putin didn't putin say something like this like that they were just very very eager or very passionate uh about joining like uh russian annexation yeah well i mean he says that and, <laughs> and they also say that oh these are just russians that you know are like i don't know uh instilled with patriotic feelings yeah exa who, exactly that's that's right they're they're very you know they like go over to crimea and take a part of this you know like i don't know why they're over there like you know what do you want me to do like i can't stop good patriotic russian they go fight in crimea it's you know it's that's not my job oh yeah i say painting them as like a abraham lincoln brigade <laughs> Oh, yeah, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. That's another great <laughs> forgotten conflict we might have to talk about, the Spanish uh, Civil War. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, they the um, they use, you know, they use irregular forces. Uh, they, they find partners within the Crimean, like, security service and police that are willing to defect to them. Um, and it, it's sort of a, it's a great achievement for them, right? They're able to take Crimea. Uh, then, you know, the eastern um, – those two uh, republic or, you know, regions in eastern Ukraine, um, Donetsk and Lugansk, you know, break away, and mm -hmm. there's rebel forces there. And again, like Russia sends its – sends troops in there to fight. And what I think is interesting is um, – and I sent Andrew an article about this, and we might be able to, like, post this on the Patreon page. But there's this very interesting story about um, – some of the soldiers that Russia sends to fight in Ukraine. And mm -hmm. so it's a story about this tank driver who's, you know, like in a burn unit in Donetsk and this Russian journalist is interviewing him. And he's actually kind of surprisingly open about, you know, talking about his experience, but, you know, he's from Ulanude or like the far East. So he's a Buryat. So he doesn't, you know, look ethnically like he doesn't look like a Slav. Let's just say that. Um, but he's from a region that's very, very far away from Ukraine. Um, you know, news travel still, I think to some extent travel, you know, takes time to travel in Russia. So they take soldiers from their far East, send them all the way to Ukraine, uh, or at least the border with Ukraine, you know, start telling them like, mm -hmm. you know, take all the numbers off your tanks, like leave your cell phones, leave your IDs, you know, any sort of indicating factor, uh, that you might have. And I think the other interesting thing, too, is we talked about their reluctance uh, to use conscripts, is they have all the guys that want to go into Ukraine sign contracts if they haven't already signed them. Right. So no conscripts are going into <clears throat> Ukraine to fight. And so, you know, anyway, this guy starts getting closer to Ukraine and there's rumors of, you know, is this just a drill? Like what's going on? Um, and I think like the best part is, uh, he, the best part of the story or some of like the most ironic part is, uh, he's saying that like he and his, his buddies get, uh, you know, are listening to the radio and, and all the hosts on the radio are like, oh, there are absolutely no Russian soldiers in Maine <laughs> right now. And he and his buddies are laughing because, you know, they know uh, where they're about to go. Right. <laughs> and so they, you know, they go into Ukraine. They they help the separatist forces and he's, you know, and he's wounded. Um, but again, like, I don't think, you know, there there's all this sort of effort to try and mask that, you know, to the point where and uh, to the point where. And you see this like on some you can find some websites on the Internet about this, but like how we know 
like how they often know that there are Russian soldiers there is through social media, right? Because like mm -hmm. these guys are posting photos of themselves. With the geotags still on? <laughs> well, with geotags, but you can recognize landmarks, right. you know, and, and things like that. So like this soldier, this tankist, this tank driver that they interviewed, they sort of were able to figure out that his, that his story was, you know, was at least plausible because men in his unit are, you know, posting photos on the Russian version of Facebook from all the different mm -hmm. rail stations that they're stopping at. Uh, and there was another great one where, like, they had two uh, they had two um, Siberian husky puppies that they're all taking photos with, and because of like the geotagging, they're able to tell that. So the geotagging shows, you know, their their location, but to show that this was like the same unit, right? Because he says that like he says that you know we were offered to go to Ukraine and those that said no I don't want to go they didn't have to go and those of us that did want to go we signed contracts and they sort of reformed us into a new you know unit and all these mm -hmm. guys that he says are in his unit like some of them have pictures with these puppies that that they have at their campsite and stuff so it, it's actually really interesting how they're able to sort of fact check this to to make it sound like it's at least plausible yeah but like this like this is the new norm Right. Like this is right. the new norm for Russia. And I know it's sort of taken us a little while to get there, but this is sort of, I think, like the meat of, you know, what we what we wanted to talk about is, you know, here Russia is sending soldiers from, you know, all the way in the Far East over to Ukraine. And really, no one seems to care that much about it uh, within Russia itself, within the outside world. And and um so that you know they're able to like have the war right like the war in ukraine is going on but on some level like no one knows it's going on mm -hmm. well that's that's really interesting because it i mean it is kind of the same way that you know the, the same way that it is here in the united states right like this is there's not um it's not at the forefront of the general public's mind uh the way that it w these types of wars of choice were in the past and you know i think that's probably by design um mm -hmm. and i i'd be curious i i'm wondering alex because uh russia it seems like they have taken uh they're just going to conduct their operations in a way that is going to give the the Russian government much more plausible deniability over it and do everything at arm's length and you know very much like oh that, yeah you know like that 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 kind of like joke or whatever from like Mission Impossible right like if you are caught like uh, the the CIA will deny your existence or um, you know like all of that and but on like an entire uh, national level. And oh, yeah. Well, and and they've done that. I mean, you sort of remind me of, you know, like the Ukrainians caught these two guys, uh, yeah. these two yeah. guys that they alleged were like Russian special forces soldiers. And um, and the Russians. Right. And I think I remember this like the Russians are like we have no idea who these people are. Yeah, they're like, well, they might have <laughs> been in our military. Like they were in our military at one point, but they they quit to go, you know, to go off and, and join the separatists. So, right. no, like they're not officially with us. And I think the way that the United States has done it is to just massively increase the drone program. 
Well, the drone program, but I mean, also definitely like, private contractors have played a you know that's that's the Blackwater or whatever whatever the I hell was going to say that's now, something else but... the Russians have done too. Like the Russian like version of Blackwater is called uh, like Wagner, like the Wagner mm-hmm. private military companies. So like they have guys like over in the Central African Republic, like Syria. Um, that's sort of been another, like, remember when, um, this is in the news a few months ago, like they said that one of our airstrikes, we like killed like 12 Russian soldiers or something like oh, that. Oh yeah. Yeah. All those guys were in Wagner, like we're in oh, this okay. private military company. Okay. Yeah. And so. I mean, I'm know, guessing, does that have something to do with why that wasn't as big of a, uh, incident as it seems like it should have been? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that was the exact reason is, you know, Russia doesn't want to admit to its own people or because if they have to admit to the mm-hmm. world that, that that those were their special forces and they're going to have to tell it to their own people, which is something I don't think they want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, along those lines, too, like I think the other thing that's you know interesting and, and we talked about this a little bit with Russia um, and, and avoiding conscription. I mean, I think that the other interesting thing that that's gone on and maybe one of the reasons why these conflicts stay like relatively unknown is, um, you know, who who become the soldiers, right? And like at right. least in the United States, there's I think it's much more likely that people from poor communities or rural communities, right? Oh, definitely, because I mean, like are, that's that's the whole point. Is it's um, yeah, it, it's it's used as a uh a ticket out of out of these uh poverty situations right like you can you know like you're get you're loaded up with all sorts of of sign-on bonuses you get uh student debt is canceled or you can go to school for free after you serve like all of um i mean there's 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 all sorts of incentives that that are meant to um, appeal to people in those types of economic situations. Yeah, and I think as as part of that, right, like, I mean, those are the people that, you know, tend to, I think, be more patriotic, right, like, less likely to criticize the government, um, Mm -hmm. and also, like, they're places that, uh, you know, for lack of a better, like, term, like, that no one cares about. Right. Right. And so you're not going to like upset people if they find out that somebody from like rural Tennessee or, you know, rural wherever that, you know, he got killed or she got killed on some sort of mission. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it, like speaking of the Buryat soldiers sort of made me think about the the same sort of idea. Right. Like if those guys all get captured or killed, um, is anyone in Moscow going to care that a bunch of, you know, non-Russian guys from a, you know, part of their own country right. they've never even been to got killed in Ukraine. Like probably not as much as if it were, they're like their neighbors or something. Right. Right. And, and so I think that's, you know, that's another, that's another evolution too, is, you know, the, the increasing, I think, tendency of the military in Russia or in Russia and the United States to draw on like a certain type of person from a certain type of place to, to go essentially do the dirty work, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think the other part of it, too, 
um, and and this sort of gets into the the final part of it is that um, or I don't want to say like the final part of it, but something else that I want to talk about is like like you know we like we heard this in Afghanistan like winning hearts and minds. And, you know, you see this in all like the World War Two movies that come out, at least in the Western world, about like the home front. Right. Right. right? And how like <laughs> pop like, you know, buy war bonds and, you know, grow grow a victory garden and, you know, do all this. You know, there's all these things. Well, that this you... was this was all about I, I mean, I guess maybe not so much like what you can do on on the home front, but I'm just remembering back to that. I think it was Ken Burns had the Vietnam documentary, which focused, uh-huh. uh, it, it basically was just documenting how um, the soldiers being in Vietnam impacted different communities across the United States. And, you know, like from large cities to small towns and like the people that were, you know, the people that noticed their absence. No, I mean, I... So I guess well, like what I what I wanted to, to say with that is like, you know, whereas once winning public support, because that's, I guess, another thing about the Vietnam War that everyone this sort of gets talked about. Right. Like not just right. that we couldn't take the gloves off, but that all these, you know, liberals and hippies and anti you know war like peace mm-hmm. protesters back at home that, you know, are like spitting on the soldiers who came home and all that stuff, like if they'd only gotten behind them and gotten behind the government, then maybe we would have won that war. Right. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard that multiple times. And, you know, regardless of whether or not that was true or not, like, I think what is interesting is that, and, and you know, maybe this gets to, like, the moral justifications behind the different wars uh, and, and, and whatnot, or, like, the level of sacrifice that is, you know, required of them, but... Anyway, I think what's fascinating now is, you know, now the mantra seems to be like we don't need the home front support, like we just need the home front to forget. Right. Right. And and that's what it's all designed on is just making sure that nobody cares about what's going on and in that way you sort of get free reign to do whatever you want. I mean, that gets back to what you said with uh the Bush administration not wanting um, you know, not wanting, um, yeah, like um, the, the photo the photographs of the, of the caskets coming back. Uh, I mean, to, to talk about somebody like, um, to, to talk about somebody like Colin Kaepernick, right. I mean, like I understand that his protest was against police brutality and like, I don't want to say that it was, that it was something else, but what was he criticized for? Uh, I think more than anything was like disrespecting the military. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and, and where I'm going with this is like the whole notion of like support the troops and things like that. Like, that's just so hollow. Like, what does that even mean? Right. Like support the troops where in Afghanistan, in, you know, in Iraq, like support them where. And so we, you know, we sort of get into this, we sort of get into this world where I think on the one hand, like you don't want people to know what's really going on. Like we've seen that in the, the Afghanistan papers that have come out that like the United States government, like deliberately lied about the progress of the war, about our Afghan partners, you know, all sorts of things like that. I mean, that's certainly happened in Russia as well Mm -hmm. with the Soviet union um, or sorry, with the Soviet union and its Afghan war. But, you know, like more importantly though, it's, 
they not that they just that they trying to mask it from you, but any sort of criticism is just sort of it's not even like I don't know, it doesn't even really exist, right? Like you know, it's just almost like, oh, so like what are you protesting? Like the fact that we only have, you know, a hundred thousand soldiers in uh in Afghanistan and we've only suffered like two thousand casualties or something right. like that, right? I mean on some level, like what's there to protest, especially if you don't have conscription, um, you know, pulling men and, and, and women out of communities. Right. I right? mean, I, that, that makes it harder because then you have to, you have to protest like the, um, you know, you, you got to make people care about, uh, people that they don't know. Well, and, and, you, just... and you have to make, I would say just look at the difficulty at trying to get people to um, care about what's, uh, you know, the Saudi war in Yemen and the United States supporting supporting that war. Right? Like just like the mm-hmm. absolute uh, fight that the uh, war powers resolution had to go through in both houses of Congress. Well, and, you know, this was probably something that I, I'm a bit embarrassed I didn't think about earlier. But, I mean, you know, really, um, you know, really, like, I think something that is fascinating about the, the sort of military era that we live in now is that we have seemed to enter an era where the and, – and not that, like, command – well, you know, it hasn't always been this way. Um, I'll just get to my point, though, which is that <laughs> – we we seemingly entered an era where like the objective of any war is to avoid casualties, like no matter what the cost. And as long as you can avoid the casualties, you can avoid the blowback that comes uh, that that comes right. at home, right? And so you avoid casualties in multiple different ways, right? Like if you're if you're Russia and Ukraine, you say, oh well, you know. So what if this guy died? He wasn't a soldier in our army. Like people die all the time. (laughs) Like nothing here to talk about. Um, Or you know, if you're if you're the United States, like okay, like when we had when Iran shot the drone down, right? And like there was the whole thing where like Trump canceled the military strike at the last minute and all of that (laughs) because it's like okay, yeah, we lost a drone, right? (laughs) You know, big deal. Like no, you know, no one really seems to care about that. Uh, and, you know, and that always hasn't been the case. Right. I mean, like if you look at um, if you look at military strategy and, and battles throughout, um, you know, throughout history, like there were many a commander like I'm thinking of like Ulysses S. Grant, for example, in the American Civil a whole War, northern strategy. <laughs> yeah. Where it's like, you know, we just want to fight them. And I don't care if I have a ton of casualties because right. I'll just you know, I'll grind them down. And and that now I think is something that's very, very different. So I, I feel like we've sort of been uh, we, we've sort of been like um, going down these different avenues. And I, and I kind of want to come to a junction so we can um, you know move on, I think, to the next part of our discussion. So I think we've talked about sort of two things or three things here. So we've talked about, you know, just sort of the basic history of Russia's engagement in um, in Afghanistan, in Chechnya, uh, how that relates to the United States' own problems uh, and current conflict in Afghanistan. You know, then we talked about 
well, you know, what was like, what was the lesson that Russia learned? Well, you know, Russia learned, okay, don't fight wars with conscripts anymore. Um, you know, use contract soldiers, mm -hmm. make sure that you have plausible deniability. Um, the United States on some level has done that uh, through the use of private military contractors. Um, you know, the and, and the third thing, though, is, um, you know, you, that you don't need the home front support. You just need them not to care or like be indifferent. Right. right? They're like difference is like the same thing as support. And. I think that is sort of the thread that we've left a little bit, you know, unraveled. And I'd like to tighten up a little bit because um, it gets into like what they allege Russia is fighting um, in Ukraine right now, which is like a hybrid war. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I think that that's like the next phase of. Of warfare as well, like at least that that's always going to be a component. Right. It's not only the boots on the ground, but like it's the information war that's fought on the internet right? and through social media. And I mean, that might be, I think that's something definitely, you know, worth looking into um, because I think that it's something where like, if you look at what the Russians have done, they've been extremely successful in doing it. So like, what, what do you, what do you mean, mean by that? Like, what is, what is, what does that look like? So, I think what I mean, I think what that looks like is I mean, I especially remember this when the conflict in um, in Ukraine first broke out mm -hmm. and seeing like the people that I'm, you know, like friends or like other posts that I would see like on Facebook coming from like the the Russian speaking world. And it was sort of like. I mean, on some level, like it's remarkable now that like the term, you know, now that like fake news has become a thing, because like on some level, like that's sort of what, you know, you saw sort of happening. Right. right. That, like you, you, this was like a humanitarian uh, crisis that Russia was alleviating, that there were attacks in Ukraine on Russian speakers. Um, you know, I think actually like Russian state media uh, portrayed this. Uh, like made up this completely bogus story about how like some Ukrainian nationalists or something like that, like crucified a Russian speaking boy <laughs> in Ukraine somewhere. And I mean, again, it like, it goes back to what we talked about, like with Surkov, like Vladislav Surkov all the way back in like episode, like three or four, right. like something like that. But it's like, I don't think that they, you know, I guess like where I'm going with this is like the new information war isn't like, you know, lying about isn't going to be like lying about uh, body counts and, you know, trying to like deliberately mislead people. It's just going to be like, you know, here is a literal, you know, sewer of information that I'm just going to flood onto you, like just all this complete crap mm -hmm. and none of it's true. And you maybe know that, but there's just so much of it out there that you're just not going to care what the truth is anymore right so so basically like whatever you know like whatever the next iteration of uh pentagon leaks are i mean in whatever you know forever war we find ourselves in 50 years later it's gonna be detailing how 
they weren't really so much lying to the people about uh, how the war was going, but just showing how uh, everything, you know, showing how they made sure the information about it got lost in the in the noise. Yes, exactly. I mean, even I mean, even on I think that even is happening right now because, you know, like I, I would see all these impassioned pleas on Facebook about um, from like, you know, friends and other people say like, you know, everyone needs to read this, you know, or like I saw something to like a, oh, a yeah. time, like a time news story where like 45 percent or 50 percent of Americans like something like that didn't even know we were fighting a war in Afghanistan. <laughs> Christ. Well, like it's, something like yeah, that. it's, uh, you know, cause it's like a six part, six part, um, piece from the Washington post. And I mean, you would think that this is like, they are, they're pretty much, uh, an equivalent of, you know, modern equivalent of what the Pentagon papers were and just kind of comparing and contrasting how, uh, the, the Pentagon papers were so huge huge and so devastating to um to the administration um and it, it was a nixon administration at the time right yeah it was the nixon administration right like i mean um it, uh, an administration that was not in in any shape to be taking body blows like those at the, at the time um yeah but and and I mean, I, I God, that's just one more parallel between the two now that I think about it, because it's like you would think that that the timing of this for the Trump administration would be would be devastating. But the day after they were published, they were gone from like the top of the news, like aggregators of like Google News and things like that. Like they weren't they're were no longer front page. I think Washington well, Post I mean, website it, had just like a little, a small little, little box of you know part two of the Afghanistan papers, and that was it. Yeah, I, I think, you know, this is something I think that we've touched on before, but I mean, I think that it bleeds into war, you know, it bleeds into the conduct of warfare as well, which is that, you know, war in the information age to me just seems or like the age of the Internet just seems so dramatically different because, you know, as you said, like intentionally or not, you can you can make things disappear by just burying it in in other stories. Right. And and, and maybe that's because now, like we've sort of been like preconditioned to that. And I mean, mm -hmm. I think another thing, too, that um you know, talking about like the public mood and reaction to war and, and why it's become the way that it has is, you know, after Vietnam, right, there's like this great mistrust of the government. I mean, there's sort of always, I think, been mistrust of the government in Russia and the Soviet Union. Uh, so that's nothing new. But, you know, what I think is new is that the this ability to take advantage of people's cynicism. Right. Right. Because like, like the the and I mean, I'm guilty of this. Like, I saw that Washington Post article, and I was like, "Okay, yeah, like, tell me something I don't know." Well, I mean, like, <laughs> that's 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 also like part of it too. Is I'm I'm wondering if maybe I don't know. I I guess it's it's really hard to to use us as 
examples because I mean like not to you know not to toot our own horns but I like to think that you and I are pretty high information what we would call high information voters <laughs> yeah well, so so you know like but, it's it's not going to be a, a any shocking revelation um to people that that have been paying attention that yeah the war in Afghanistan not going so great and hasn't well, been going yeah, so but, great I, but I think that it's something deeper than that, right? Where, like, you know, where, where does, like, where does radical political change come from? I think that it comes from when, you know, people's expectations of their life, right, of their day-to-day mm-hmm. lived experience does not match up with what is being promised to them. Uh, and, you know, obviously people can put up with a lot and have put up with a lot, but, right. you know, you see these moments of, of where people sort of seemingly like break out of their stupor, right. And, and, and do something, whether that's the American revolution, Russian revolution, French revolution, you know, Chinese revolution, whatever, whatever it is that you want to talk about. But, you know, again, like what's, what fuels that though, is like the promise of change, Right. That like if we go through this, like things are going to get better. And I think now the problem is and like maybe this is why, um, you know, maybe we can end with this. I don't know if it's, you know, if it's so if it's a wise thought, but like now that we live in a world that is so marked by cynicism and that um, no one really, I think, believes in any of these great political truths anymore. Um, no, no one believes the promise of a better world. No one believes in any sort of thing like that anymore. And so we just kind of keep propelling along in our own cynicism. So it's like, okay, well, the government's lying to me about Afghanistan. Yeah, like I kind of expected that. What do I want to do about it? I don't really know because, you know, I don't like this candidate. I don't like that candidate or, you know, everyone's got their own agenda. um, So there's not really anybody worth believing, you know, whatever. And but what's the result of that? You know, things keep going on. Right. Right. Well, so I think it's in, it's in a way like I, I Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I think it's the, um, I think the issue is the, the material conditions of people are still pretty, um, pretty unaffected by it. I mean, I, I think that, I think that's part of it as well. Uh, certainly. Right. Um, that people's material condition hasn't been affected by the war in Afghanistan. Um, I mean, that's sort of starting to change, I think, in Russia, right? I mean, like their economy mm-hmm. is certainly facing a lot of obstacles, and it is sort of up in the air whether or not they'll be able to continue, you know, these interventions across the world to the level that they're at. But, like, I guess, like, where I'm going at is, um, and, you know, this goes back to, like, you know, Surkov, who I think is on some level like a mad genius. Right. But like it's weaponizing our own cynicism against us. Mm-hmm. Right. And so um, like our whole sort of, con- you know, condition post Vietnam on is to like that we should sort of expect that our government is going to be doing this stuff like the Call of Duty modern warfare video games would not exist. Right. Right. <laughs> if it were or at least the Black <laughs> Ops version. Right, like, would not exist exactly. if it were not for that sentiment, right? We just there's always just that kind of, um, I mean, and this is, you know, this is something that 
uh, would be way too too far afield for this podcast, let alone this episode, but just kind of the general general mistrust of uh, the government, especially post post Watergate, where it's just always kind of assumed that yeah, there are things that the government isn't telling us, uh, and you know what? As long as as long as people lives are materially comfortable you know they're not gonna they don't care yeah i mean i i i don't i mean i don't disagree with that i mean i guess where i was going is that like even for the people that would care Mm -hmm. we've sort of been so conditioned to expect that our uh that our government is going to do something like this right that it's almost like a you know it's almost like nothing has happened at all right no, yeah, you know, I, like I, 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 I'm sort of struggling to articulate like what I want to say with this, but like I, I think that that's one of the you know sort of new realities about the era that we live in, you know, which is that you know like now that like there, you know, if there is no sort of like great truth, right, then what is there? Well, there's just my daily life and my daily existence, and that's all that really matters anymore. And, you know, maybe that's sort of a good way to wrap this all up, right, is because when the Soviet Union goes into uh, goes into Afghanistan, like it's nominally under the Brezhnev doctrine, which is, you know, we are going to support all socialist nations throughout the world, you know, in their mm-hmm. in their struggle. Uh, you know, no one believed that, but that was sort <laughs> of the stated objective. I mean, maybe right. some people believe that. Uh, you know, what were we doing in Vietnam? Well, nominally, we were there to support the, the you know, prevent the, the spread of evil communism throughout the world and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Well, why were we in Afghanistan, you know, when we went in 2001? Well, it was to defeat terrorism and, and, right. and all that. Um, but, you know, like, if you look at, like, Russia, Russian state media now, why are they in Ukraine? Oh, guess what? We're not in Ukraine, <laughs> you know, or like, right. uh, why are, you know, like, why are we like, why are our soldiers in Afghanistan? Like, you know, like, I don't know, to prevent the Taliban from taking over again until we negotiate with them to like, yeah. get them to, you know, I mean, that really is, fight. that is one thing that is interesting. It's like, at least the, um, you know, from the, the, uh, the differences in approaches of it. the Russian approach seems to give give their government a much better line that they can tell their own people. Whereas here, it's it's basically just like, well, why are we in Afghanistan? Who cares? Like it's all drones, anyways, and no one's getting hurt. So why are you even bothering to ask these questions? Yeah, well, I mean, but it, on some level, it's sort of I think built towards the same thing, which is like. Who cares? Right. You know, like, so what <laughs> if we're there? Don't, don't, don't go looking, don't go, uh, uh, turning this rock over too, too closely. Right. Like don't, don't dig too deep yeah. into it. And, and it's fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> and then, but then if you are like the one person that's like, you know, Oh, this war in Afghanistan is terrible. Like it needs to be, it needs to stop. And, you know, our government's been lying to us. I mean, like, so, like, what's the sort of, I think, standard canned response of, like, what, the government lying to me? Yeah. Like, yeah. 
what you know what a surprise and then we just kind of like ho hum go back on to our daily lives we're all Dale Grubble right? now. And, and I guess that's where I'm sort of getting at, like, the weaponization of our own cynicism, where if, you know, you, you somehow, like, ever trusted in your government or ever believed mm -hmm. in it, then something like this might shock you. But if you've sort of been trained to think that, like, oh, the government's just out there doing all kinds of stuff, like spying on me, like all that, like another great example, and maybe – you know, that I think sort of supports my point is like, remember when this guy named Edward Snowden revealed this huge right. spy campaign that the United States was doing against its own citizens? And I'm sure that poor guy thought that he was going to like start the next, you know, like global freedom internet revolution. And if not that, I'm, sure, I'm sure he thought like there would be some material changes <laughs> in, in the uh, uh, structures of. Uh, the NSA, right? Like, at and bare, I mean, like how, you know, how bitter minimum, he probably thought some people would lose their jobs. And I mean, how bitter he must feel to be like, I went through all of this, and like nobody cared. Like, same thing when the the Panama Papers came out. I right. think that we talked about this too. Like, so I don't. I, I do want to say I don't want to ascribe just. I, I don't want to wholly subscribe the lack. I don't want to uh, ascribe the antipathy to, towards all this to just people not really caring or being fully, you know, too cynical to to really care and just having lost completely all faith in in uh, institutions or government. But I, I do think a large part of it is just that, you know, uh, who has time to worry about this, right? Like, especially. It, when we're in um, a situation where more and more people are living uh, more and more precarious lives, right? Like the in in the order of priorities, um, the fact that uh, the government lied about how much it was spending in Afghanistan is probably going to fall pretty low. Yeah. So I no, think I, mean, I think I, that's definitely part of it. I I don't want to just say like it's it's because we're a country of tinfoil hats, but well, I think that there. I mean, I again, like I think that there are multiple like factors that go into play. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one certainly like is the you know as you said like it doesn't really impact people's material lives, and so they're not going to sort of make that sort of connection. Um, but I, 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 again, I think another part of it, though, is because, like, if you look at the Vietnam War, like, I mean, certainly there is conscription, but, um, you know, like, there's that great scene in Mad Men, right, where, like, Don is eating dinner with these people, and they're talking about how we're losing the Vietnam War, and he kind of looks around this, like, you know, this Manhattan restaurant, right. and it's like, doesn't look like it, you know, from here, like, you know, sort of the point being that, you know, in Vietnam, I think we sort of overstate how much that impacted people's lives, too. Right. Um, so I, I, I think that it's both, I guess, like, I don't want to completely dismiss your idea that, um, that it's just people's material condition. Like, I do think that's an extremely important factor. But I think another reason why we don't see the protests that we did with Vietnam and that, you know, like Russia doesn't see the the sort of societal problems that it had during the Soviet Afghan war 
is, you know, sort of all the things we've talked about, the mm-hmm. use of, um, you know, plausible deniability, right? Like the use of irregular troops or the use of drones, uh, the use of disinformation, like all of that, all of it. So you can make sure that the person at home who votes or, you know, who, who would protest against you just either sits at home because it doesn't impact them or just thinks like, oh, yeah, what a surprise, like, you know, as they turn the page to the a story about massive government corruption or whatever, right? I mean, or like, or as they turn the page to something like completely, you know, different, right? Right. Well, I, I also think um, maybe this is a, a, a nice little way that we can put a bow on this. Um, I, I think kind of the cynicism and the material conditions part of it, I think that goes hand in hand. I think part of the mm-hmm. reason why um, why there is so much uh, less faith in, in government and institutions uh, is because that uh, people's because of people's material conditions, right? Like if you're, um, you know, this is what we were talking about before. If you're being constantly told that everything's fine and everything's great and uh, all that, but you know your material conditions are the exact opposite of that, you're going to be much more cynical about what is being told to you. So I think it's, you know, it's an easy jump if um, all you're hearing is great economic news and the economy is humming along, folks. It's it's great. Everything's looking up. Stock market's never been higher. Uh, But you can't afford a $400 emergency expense uh, and you're working a low-wage job that you may or may not lose on some company's whim. Well, or you're side hustling, man. Right, right, right. Like then you got all those side hustles going. Right, you're working not three it's gig- cool, but because you need to stay alive. Right. If you have to do that, uh, and you're just constantly being told that it's great, and it's like, well, yeah. I mean, like the government's lying to me about this. Why wouldn't they lie about? about the state of the war in Afghanistan. So I think, I think those things are related. Yeah, no, I, I think that is a good way to, to, to sort of, you know, put a bow on this, as you said, and wrap all of this up. So, um, I don't like to kind of give people a preview. And again, we thank you for listening to this, uh, to this episode. Like we are like looking for, for feedback, like episode ideas, or maybe you want to write in with questions. Like, I don't really know. Um, cause you haven't written anything yet. Uh, so, <laughs> so we'd love to, we'd love to hear something like that. Uh, like your ideas about this. Uh, I'm not quite sure what we're going to be talking about for, um, our next episode. Uh, there's certainly some things in the, you know, in the news, um, you know, Ukraine and Russia did reach a ceasefire uh, in the east mm-hmm. uh, of, of eastern Ukraine. So that might be something worth talking about. Uh, Russia has also been banned by the World Anti-Doping Association for <laughs> Again. a little while, a couple of years, I think, for most competitions. So that actually might be a good idea uh, to talk about is like Russian, like Soviet sport and, yeah. you know, the involvement of the state in developing sports in Russia yeah and the soviet union and you know cheating scandals maybe we can even <laughs> loop in some uh american <laughs> just kidding andrew um but no i mean definitely i think it would 
if you were talking about um, sort of the evolution of sport within the Soviet Union and 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 how that sort of carries over into Russia today. So I think that will be our next out. Uh, that'll be our next topic. So again, we you know look, we look forward to your feedback. Uh, we appreciate those of you who've stuck with us uh, throughout the whole time, and and those of you who've just started to listen in. So until next time. Yep. Thanks. Bye. Я люблю позиции без смысла, обожаю ждать пустое окно. 